It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. On this week's New Statesman podcast, we talk about the Tory leadership race, reselection processes in the Labour Party, and Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. So it's another exciting week in the Conservative leadership election. It was either the first week or the however manyth week, depending on how you count it. So I was on holiday. I went on a brief weekend away. So if you could catch people up who like me, yeah. So I think like. The last thing I saw before I got rid of all of the push notifications from my phone was police call to Boris Johnson's flat. And I'm afraid, seeing as Patrick doesn't listen to this podcast, and neither hopefully do any of the people who are uh, in the process of applying to join him as our third political correspondent, I took the view that that was either going to blow over by the time I got back, or it would be so important that Patrick would have to phone me and explain what was going on. And (laughs) in either case, I didn't have to care. But it turned out it was still going on when I got back. So if you could... Well, in an amazing feat of web desk planning, I was also on holiday when that story came out. But I think actually, from a perspective of not paying attention to the news, or at least not following the story unfolding on Twitter, um, when I read that story, and this probably is controversial to say, but I have no idea because I haven't read any of the debates about it and have only been back since, since Monday, I thought this is definitely going to backfire if it's if it's an attack on Boris Johnson to try and undermine his leadership bid because it just looks like an invasion of his privacy and also it looks like something very uncomfortable for his girlfriend too which is quite sort of an unattractive thing and when I came back as I understand it you know the the internet was split between people who thought that the reporting was an invasion into his privacy and that the neighbours were being cynical and you know people who thought that we should know about this potential moral failing of our potential next prime minister and so when I read it on holiday which was sort of in snatched headlines I I felt on the other side yeah it's odd so what happened which I I reconstructed and I don't think my feel-good feeling from being on holiday has ever evaporated faster (laughs) neighbors in the converted house so it's a block of flats but it used to be a big house Mm. that uh, he currently lived in with his partner Carrie Simons heard shouting and what sounded to them like the smashing of crockery they called the police one of the neighbours recorded it, 
to give to the police if the police uh, that wanted it. The police went round, concluded there was nothing to investigate. The recording then made its way to the Guardian newspaper, who has written it up, but the contents of it have not been published. Yeah. Now, what I think is interesting about this is that... So, because so, my feeling when I saw it is I kind of thought, this story will, will one way or the other have ended by the time I get back from my long weekend. Mm-hmm. My thesis being either... It's two people shouting at each other, their neighbours getting nervous, and it being nothing. Yeah. In which case, the story dies on Saturday morning. Or it's something, in which case, his leadership bid dies on Sunday morning. Either way, this story is not going to have a particularly long shelf life. Now, what I think is interesting about it is, you know, it's still semi-rumbling along on what will be for people who subscribe to the New Statesman Digitally and receive this on a Wednesday evening, on what will be day five. It may still even be rumbling by day six. And what I think is interesting about it is the definition of, I think, of a non-story, right? In the Then essentially, right, it's entirely the right thing to do if you live in a block of flats and you think that you hear the neighbours having a row to check... And if you don't hear a response, the neighbour didn't hear it, get a response to call the police. Or actually, to be honest, if you're worried about what will happen to you if you, you go and knock yourself, it's perfectly reasonable just to skip straight ahead to, to step two. However, I, I think that the argument that it is in the national interest for the recording, obviously, I mean, if, if I had been past it, I would, of course, published it because people pass you things and I don't necessarily think actually in their interests all the time, right? Yeah, of course, um, yeah. But I think that the argument the the neighbour had that it is in our interest to hear the recording, I just don't think stacks up. Yeah, it's of public interest because people are interested in it. But at the point where his partner has said, yeah, he said she doesn't want something to go forward to the police and the police have said, we don't think there's anything to investigate here. There is no argument other than purience. Yeah. However, the obvious painless way to make it go away, other than if you're Boris Johnson feeling that your neighbours probably do have it in for you, having to say something through gritted teeth, is simply to say, our voices were raised, we said things that we shouldn't have, we're lucky to have civic-minded neighbours, and this is the right way for people to respond if they hear a domestic violence. Because it's kind of like it's every man, Boris, who lives in a house, a flat of multiple occupation, just like we all do, etc., yeah. etc., and this is actually me entirely stealing an, an observation from a Conservative MP, then they made the point and they said that the failure to do that, they were like, it's a classic example of candidatitis, which is where the candidate runs a campaign and, and basically where none of the, the... Because ultimately the person who that, that statement is painful for is the candidate and his partner. However, in terms of the candidate and his partner's interests, that is obviously a better and more sensible route than the world's most hilarious staged photo, which if our <laughs> listeners haven't seen it, it's hard to describe for an audio medium but yeah i mean it's it's sort of like quite nice looking garden furniture in a unidentifiable very green spot with sort of boris johnson and his partner's backs kind of semi turned to the camera sitting at a table looking relaxed in plaid shirts and smiling yeah yeah it's it's particularly it's like an ikea advert yeah it's particularly odd because like if you've decided instead of just doing the like pro forma statement even if you roll your eyes while you sign it off, right? If you decide instead of doing the pro forma statement to leak a photo, like 
go to a pub. Yeah. You know, do it somewhere where plausibly there could be cameras, or it's just like yeah, where yeah just like, go, just do it. Where is it? Just like they said, this like weird catalog style photo. Now, but again, I, I, so <laughs> the criticism of this photo was that it doesn't matter about you know the ins and outs of his private life. Oh, that's all so you know frivolous, and that's stuff for the tabloids. But what matters is that he's potentially sort of not telling the truth about when the photo was taken because he didn't answer the question 26 times or something about when the photo was taken or or by who. I just don't really buy that argument at all because politicians do staged photo shoots all the time. And so really the artifice is there from the beginning. Who who cares when the photos were taken? I actually think that that's all part of the artifice of, of politicians trying to present an image of themselves or at least an image of their private life to the public that they do all the time. I just, I don't think, we know that Boris Johnson is a dishonest person. It's very important to, to hold that to account. But I don't think this is a particularly particular example of his own individual sort of dishonest style. Yeah, no, I think that there's a lot in that. I think part of the reason why it's somehow still gone on into day five is partly a kind of thing that, weirdly, people feel strongly that Boris Johnson is more dishonest than the average politician. And therefore, any example of Boris Johnson being dishonest is coded in a lot of people's minds as remarkable dishonesty, rather than, as you say, actually, like, you know... Exactly. Like, you know, this, yeah, like, guess what? The the Ed Miliband, Justine Thornton, <laughs> kitchenette hostage <laughs> photo. Um, oh, lest we forget. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the Molly's kitchenette, good times, good times, was obviously staged uh, as well. I kind of agree, and I think a part of what is going on here is, like, ultimately... While we should, of course, give headroom to the idea that Jeremy Hunt might win the leadership election, I, I can't be on the pro forma knowledge that I need to give headroom to it except that it is a, an actual possibility. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. a possibility because it's, a, it's an election. Yeah. Um, but in a way, I think that this, this photo and this row has done probably quite a lot to boost Boris Johnson's, Johnson's chances against that very slim possibility because I think he's almost received the Corbyn treatment so, you know, the picture of Jeremy Corbyn on the train and whether or not that was real and which carriage he was pictured in and what does the CCTV footage show? It's similar to the did Boris Johnson have his hair cut after those photos were taken type obsession, which is amplified because we know certain things about Boris Johnson. Like you say, we know that he's dishonest. So we're amplifying this particular example of potential dishonesty. Like we did with Jeremy Corbyn, we know he pretends to or he likes to present an image of himself as virtuous. Look, he the train actually had room on it for him to sit down. Oh, he's pretending to be virtuous. It's similar. And that over-the-top outrage, that sort of knee-jerk outrage that it is slightly confected by their opponents, only makes their supporters want to support them more, you know, want to defend them and want to say they're being given unfair treatment by the press and by their opponents and that it's a cynical attack and the outrage is, is manufactured. Yeah, I agree. I also think what they also have in common is they are news stories during an internal leadership election when it's hot. Almost everyone covering it would rather be on holiday. And everyone kind of knows that barring some astonishing event, Jeremy Corbyn was going to win that leadership election 60-30. And to be blunt, Jeremy Hunt will be doing well even to lose only 60-30. <laughs> and I think it encourages people to kind of to leap upon things to write about other than flawed frontrunner entrenches his unassailable lead. Yeah. What I do think is interesting about it, right, is because, because bluntly I don't think this was a difficult story to deal with better than they have done. And 
obviously one of the things that usually happens when people are successful in leadership elections is they fire a bunch of people. You know, not all at once, not sometimes deliberately. Sometimes people who were quite good during the campaign decide, well, actually, I want to go back to being, you know, press officer for whatever international charity I was working on before I was on the Corbyn campaign, or I want to go and back to, you know, Dwight Schultz or whatever implausibly named um, American <laughs> lobbying firm. Uh, like, they do all sound like the names of, like, really rubbish potboil detectives. Like, you know, like, you can really imagine, like, yeah, my name was Pete Edelman. <laughs> she was a dame to kill for with legs all the way down. Yeah, they, they want to go back. Because you've won, you can hire, bluntly, people who were not going to take an insecure job for six months. Yeah, which is why, you know, if you're ever up late night watching a, a paper review, you will sometimes see people who appear to have absolutely no political judgment whatsoever, and they'll have something in their bio like, you know, worked for David Cameron, you know, <laughs> 05 to 07, and you're like, how did that joker work for a successful leader of the opposition? And the answer is, of course, they didn't. Yeah. The, the period when that guy was actually a leader of the opposition and that person worked for them was teeny tiny. The crucial difference is, is given that it feels hard... At least I think it feels hard, and we should definitely talk about that because I keep going back and forth on this. It feels hard to me, at least, to see how we're not going to have an election by October. Broadly, this is the set of people who are going to have to shepherd Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party through a fairly difficult... Yeah, ignoring the Brexit stuff, the rise of the, Lib Dem, the revival of the Lib Dems, rise of the Brexit Party, ignoring all of that stuff, what would structurally be quite a difficult election for the Conservative Party anyway. These people are going to have to deal with that. And I think the fact that such a meal has been made of this story and their slightly cack-handed attempts to get rid of it. Mm. Now, I think a lot of that is, is actually that the candidate doesn't want to be managed rather than, yeah, I don't think for a moment that anyone working in Boris's campaign thought, you know, it would be a great idea a catalogue photo of the <laughs> candidate and his partner. That will definitely not pour paraffin on this fire. But I think it's interesting because definitely the thing that several people in the Labour Party and several people in the Lib Dems have, have said is that they feel that it shows that this is quite a brittle inner team. Mm. And I think that is probably more revealing. Yeah, and what you say, I mean, if it's led by the candidate himself, that says bad things about his premiership as well. Yeah. And that, of course, is the, one of the reasons why Linton Crosby is, is held in high esteem by some Conservatives, is they feel he's one of the people who was actually able to successfully manage up mm -hmm. uh, when working with Boris Johnson, which is not something that, that many people have managed. But yet, are we going to have an election this year? Let's say Boris Johnson is going to be Prime Minister. In his campaign, he said that he wants us to leave with or without a deal on the 31st of October. Leaving with a deal is going to be impossible without an election or a referendum. So leaving without a deal. How do you do how do you leave without a deal with Parliament's approval? So that would also probably need an election to change the makeup of Parliament to try and leave without a deal. Unless Parliament doesn't get its act together like it has shown that it's it's failed to do over the past few months. But with Boris Johnson in charge, I feel like that would galvanize the the opposition to no deal in Parliament better than Theresa May's sort of watered down slightly rubbish trying to leave with a deal on time but not really so I feel like I have more faith in parliament under Boris Johnson than I did in under Theresa May so I feel like they they will successfully frustrate a no deal Brexit so there will have to be an election so yes my a long answer for yes I think there will be yeah an election. no I think that feels about right because I think although so basically the thing I can't work out is I do feel some Labour MPs for understandable reasons it's not in Theresa May's interests to point out that actually she is the one who stopped No Deal in March. Mm. It's certainly not in Yvette Cooper, Oliver Letwin or Nick Bowles' thing to just be like, actually, by the time we were able to water <laughs> down what we wanted to a point, then you 
you lollipops were willing to 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 vote for, it was actually too late. And only having a prime a sympathetic prime minister in down. I mean, she did effectively do the equivalent of a teacher helping out a very slow child. Going, I think what you wanted to do <laughs> was seek some kind of extension. It was just like that. She very much could have if she if she had been minded to take Parliament out without a deal. Because so the original Cooper bill, which was voted down because it was too ambitious, specifically went. It was designed so it could not be exhausted by the prime minister standing up and going, "I'm glad this bill has passed. I will ask for an extension of ten seconds." Yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks. Bye. Did they have a Did they have a set time period? Or? No. So the actual bill went passed because there was so much anxiety in various bits of parliament about, oh, you know, is this blocking Brexit? Had no, and I think actually may even have in the final iteration included a hard limit at the other end. Right. So on, only the fact that you had a prime minister who was essentially willing to um, to help Parliament out a bit meant that they did it last time. And I'm not certain that enough MPs really understand that dynamic. One MP who definitely does is Boris Johnson, which is why he thinks that Parliament won't block it. However, I think you're right that the fact that the, fact that the guy is Mr No Deal now mm. in his brand and, and etc. surely does mean that Parliament will get its act together Equally, of course, the thing I guess we have to give some house room to is the idea that Labour MPs who've said that they will back the deal several times in private, who haven't yet, might actually do so, thereby averting an election. Mm -hmm. But this is where the other story, which we of course will get onto in part two, becomes so important. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. Indeed. So the Labour Party has sent a round-robin round to all of its MPs asking them to to tell them whether or not they want to stand down because the party, in anticipation of a of a looming election, uh, wants to bring about its re- reselection processes. These will be the first under their slightly tweaked rules. So the You Ask Us is essentially, what does it all mean and does it matter? Now, Anoush, your coverage of local or councils is obviously better than mine. Can you remember what Labour's old trigger ballot rule rules were? <laughs> so, no, I can't remember. It was, it was, <laughs> I actually wrote a and a about it. <laughs> it was, um, you know, you have to have a certain number of people who represent the, the branches and the affiliate groups in your constituency party to uh, say that um, they want to have a trigger ballot um, to decide whether or not you were reselected for the election, but I can't remember the threshold. The original rules were, I having actually read your explainer on it. Uh, <laughs> so the original rules, I also I love explaining Labour's old rules to people in other parties because they always start 
from a kind of position of oh deselection and by the end they're all so angry because <laughs> the old rules were just so comically undemocratic yeah yeah um, so because it's not even it's not even the members of the branches is it? it's the representatives uh, no so is that it, right? it is the members of the individual ward branches but right. they're not weighted in any way so let's say you live in you know made uppington central and you have six wards but two of them are where most of the people in the Labour Party live. Those two wards have exactly the same vote, one each, as the other four. That's it. Under the old rules, you needed 50% of your affiliated branches, which includes those six ward branches, to vote to re-adopt you. So I was explaining this to some Lib Dem MPs earlier this week, and when they when I start this, they interrupted me like waited, right? And I was like, oh no, 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 yeah. <laughs> and they were like, that, that seems a bit undemocratic, and I was like, oh no, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> you wait, yeah. So now obviously there are also affiliate branches, that is trade unions, local Fabian Society, local Friends of the Environment, local LGBT group, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, again, that that sounds fair enough, except these branches count for the same as the ward parties, despite the fact that they have no obligation to to have any actual members in them. There is no necessary requirement for them to have an internal ballot. And you could, you know, for example, let's say you were Usdal, the, you know, the, the shop workers union, you could suddenly go, actually, we're going to affiliate eight branches, even if you only have one yeah, you know, one recognised workplace. Or if you wanted to, and you were the head of the local LGBT Labour Society, there is no reason, there may be in LGBT Labour's rulebook, but there is no reason in Labour's rulebook that you can't go, actually, we're going to have one branch for every ward, even though we have no members in or in all but, but one of the, the, the six wards. Now, of course, what this means, fairly obviously, is that provided you are were well organised as the Labour MP and you were in good standing either with at least one of your local trade union officials and your national trade union officials, your ward parties could not get rid of you. You, know, you, you could always guarantee that your selection was sewn up elsewhere. Now they have a system where if a third of your, of either type, affiliate branches or ward branches, vote for you to be go through a full reselection, you do. But secondly, because they now count as two separate hurdles to be jumped through, if your local party wants rid of you, the trade unions and the other affiliates can't save you. Now, the reason why I think this is probably unstable in the long term, not from a, what outcomes it produces, but just whether or not it can command enduring consent within the Labour Party's power brokers, is I don't think that... I mean, some trade union political officers do understand the level of power that they signed away in that deal. I don't think that... It has been fully appreciated yet, not least because I think it has been fully appreciated by MPs or indeed people across the Labour Party's wider movement. The level of the transfer of power from trade unions to lay members and the quite profound impact that has. Heathrow, my, my hobby horse on this, right? The argument for voting for Heathrow used to be essentially that it was, you were much, much worse off if the various pro-expansion trade unions decided to affiliate a bunch of branches to get rid of you than you were if your anti-Heathrow activists tried to get rid of you because they were capped in, you know, they were contained within their wards. Yeah. That has completely shifted the other way now. Very few MPs have really absorbed that. Very few trade unions have really absorbed that. But... Eventually, people will realise that. And I imagine just as, you know, obviously the iron rule of the Labour Party is every rule changes in fashion with someone somewhere at some point. So I think that will probably change at some point. The question is, you know, 
what we don't know is how many MPs will actually be deselected this time. They've reselected in London under these rules. All of the AM survived. Obviously, the constituencies are slightly bigger. That some of them had a fright in some constituencies suggests some people will be in trouble. However, at the and the belief that you should always make stupid predictions, I think probably there'll be more Conservatives in trouble with their local parties at this election than there are Labour ones. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, actually. I just have one question about the rules. So with the with the third of branches, is it is it, again, just one vote for each branch? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so, so it's, yeah, yeah. Still, it's still... That, it's still that ridiculous. Yeah, so, yeah. so it's this is the, the kind of hilarious thing about the tweak, right? From a democracy perspective... I find it very hard to see the argument that this, the the readoption process that the SNP and the Lib Dems have, where there is an up-down vote of your membership, is not a more effective way. Yeah. Now, obviously, because of the Labour Party's tradition, history as a trade union party, I haven't closed my mind to the idea that uh, the trade union should retain some veto over that process. However, the slight weirdness is that now Labour has a situation where... Their reselection vote is not very democratic. Trade unions don't really have a veto in terms of their historic value. So it's difficult, I think, to make an argument for this policy in its own terms, other than it's slightly less terrible from a democracy perspective yeah. than what came before it. But it's still neither democratic nor practical. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, going back to the, the Conservatives, I think they have um, a slightly different problem in that their members, unlike Labour members, don't have very much say over anything. And um, and they have small, very small constituency parties as well. They've got a very small number of members. So I think when presented with the opportunity, along with all of that anger that's been bubbling up in um, constituency associations with Remain-minded MPs by Brexit members, is going to lead them to want to rebel in that way that Conservative members haven't usually done. They're sort of less deferential towards their MPs now that they've sort of they've had a sort of decade of. Cameron style ignoring and now they've got some of them in their in their constituencies have got MPs who they feel have ignored their wishes in parliament so I do think it's more likely that more Tory MPs will be in trouble than Labour ones. Yeah I think partly because it feels to me you know based on just speaking to obviously you've spoken to many more members than I have but it feels to me that Remember the last Conservative leadership election where people would say, oh, well, I thought I'd vote for Leadsom, but if the MPs think that so many MPs have backed her, they've probably got the right idea. Yeah, yeah. That, that idea as a meme in the Conservative grassroots has just gone. Yeah. And also, as you say, they don't have any other levers. So it's really tempting, therefore, to pull the big ejector lever where, where possible. Exactly. And, and also the taboo has been broken now yeah. because it's happened. I mean, they're not binding these votes, but no confidence votes have happened to, to a few Tory MPs already. So so that's sort of the precedent is there. And I think it's quite likely that, that more of them will be in trouble. Yeah. And also it's not geographically lumpy in the same way than term. So the, the, the fascinating thing is all, all of the parties this year have, have grown their membership. The Conservatives, partly because of the knowledge a lot of people well, yeah then these people will be picking the prime minister so if you're conservative inclined now has obviously been a great time to join the lib dems partly because of their leadership election partly because of their electoral successes and labor of course had a big surge when corbyn was running and a big surge during the second leadership election and the general election although the general concession is, is now flat or falling a bit my understanding from talking to both liberal democrats and labor people is that their surge is quite geographically lumpy so there are some people who actually they don't have that many new members and they feel that they're quite well integrated into their constituency party and their new members are in any case pro-Corbyn, but they are not people who are obsessed with the rule book. 
now, in the Conservative example, I mean, one, their rule book is not as anywhere near as abstruse and a... Uh, I know it says this in practice, but what it actually means in theory, what it actually means in practice is. But also, it feels to me resentment at MPs is just much more well-spread yeah. across the Conservative Party activist base. I would never expect a, an MP, a Conservative MP, to say to me, you know, a Remainer one, if I said, oh, how's your association? I have never heard the phrase, oh, well, I'm fine because it's really a Midlands problem. They just go, it's a real problem for me. You know, even some of the ones who whose electoral interests are obviously towards being fairly non-Brexity. Yeah. yeah, I mean, one MP did recently sort of say to me slightly despairingly, they said, the only people in my constituency who voted for us in 2015 who didn't then vote for Remain are members of my local party. Uh, and they said, so it's a bit of a problem yeah, because yeah. <laughs> I, everything I need to do to hold the seat increases the chances that I won't be the candidate. Yeah, I mean, I think in both cases, I think these elections will be quite patchy. But yeah, I think it will be a bigger issue on the conservative side but the fear of it is sufficiently widespread on the Labour side then I think that is another reason why the prospect of it passing on Tory votes feels pretty implausible So I hope not hate poll this week kind of essentially put figures on something we already knew which is that there is a big problem of Islamophobia within the Conservative Party grassroots and you sort of see written more about this than anyone here and I think therefore probably more than any other mainstream journalist so talk us talk us through it yeah well I've got the polling here so the most shocking figures are that nearly half of the conservative party members would prefer not to have a Muslim prime minister 40% think the number of Muslims entering Britain should be reduced 45% believe some areas are not safe for non-Muslims. Two-thirds believe parts of the UK are under Sharia law. And the most ironic stat, after all that, is only 8% believe Islamophobia is a problem within their party. Um, <laughs> so, the, yes, you're right to say that these this polling has merely confirmed what we've already known from various scandals that have blown up over the past few months. But really, it's it's it's, it's been a problem for decades, and you can see that from from even Boris Johnson's re-election campaign for the London mayoralty in 2012 when Linton Crosby, the sort of election guru, was was reported to have said, oh, you know, don't bother about trying to appeal to the fucking Muslims. And that Goldsmiths campaign in 2016 and just various other things that have happened since. So all sorts of councillors, council candidates, ordinary members have been found out for their Islamophobia, mainly on social media. And Boris Johnson's column last year in The Telegraph calling women wearing the burqa bank robbers and letterboxes. All of that has combined to um, create a very sort of nasty, hostile, apparent attitude towards Muslims in the Conservative Party. And now the Muslim Council of Britain has, has, been, has actually for years been calling for an inquiry as well. So... Yes, this polling sounds shocking, but it's really just proof of a problem that we've already known is there and has been completely neglected. So what I wanted to ask you about, yeah, this kind of... Because in many ways, right, it's kind of a dog's bite man story. Mm. Now, the thing I have really struggled with since, since what, February, when the uh, MPs broke away to form Change UK, is how to cover Labour's anti-Semitism problem. Mm. Because, bluntly, it is not, it's not, at this point, an inexplicable problem. It's not a problem with political implications that are not baked in. 
so just as I would mention the Conservatives' Islamophobia problem in the context of why they are this idea that they can become a solely Leave party, well, if you want to make up the Remain voters you're going to lose, you're going to have to do better with British Asians who voted to Leave, and you, you can't do that in your present configuration. But mostly I struggle to find ways to write about it from a political perspective because Labour MPs visibly aren't going to leave over it. But they were at least willing to make noise about it. Mm. The thing I really struggle with with conservative Islamophobia, and I don't think it's the only reason why uh, most of the the press is silent on it, some of it is just inbuilt, you know, pro-conservative bias, but it's weirdly an important story without any moving parts. And yet, of course, you've written quite a lot about it. So yeah, how do you cover a story in which... There are no moving parts. You know, people are not going to leave the, the Conservative Party over it. Well, some activists will, some activists have. But, you know, it's not going to trigger a Change UK-style moment. Yeah, I think that's a real frustration. I think one of the outlets that has been really good in reporting and finding original stories about this has been BuzzFeed. They've, they've uncovered quite a lot of the really nasty stuff online that people have been saying, and it's led to people being suspended and, and expelled, etc. So they, they've shown a way of doing it in, in a sort of journalistic, investigative way that I think has worked well for them. Although, like you say, even that has not had a huge amount of traction beyond those individual members who have been found out by it. Because, like you say, not many individuals in the Conservative Party, let alone MPs, are willing to condemn their own party for this problem, unlike, unlike in the Labour Party. It's only really Saeed Avasi who, who is one of the loudest voices about it. And it says a lot about the sort of what you call the pro-Conservative bias in the press, but also I think just simple Islam, Islamophobia, I think simple racism as well in the UK, the, the hostility towards Muslims that we know exists here, has meant that she hasn't had as much traction as she should have had either. Lots of the things she's saying today that are getting headlines, she's written in a book a few years ago, you know, and people basically ignored it. And she was in the government, she was in the cabinet. So that's part of it as well. Um, similarly, what happened with Sajid Javid's leadership bid, I think part of the reason why he had so little success was because of was because of prejudice both in the press and, and in, the, in their party as well. So I think perhaps where, where anti-Semitism people really understand what the consequences are of letting a problem like that lie because of recent European history, there's just not the same muscle memory or sort of knee-jerk response to, to what Islamophobia can lead to in this country, mm. I think. I think people just don't, don't, don't have as much respect for, yeah, I mean, for the Muslim community as they do for the Jewish community. I sort of think as a society we're basically pretty indifferent to project prejudice against minorities other than our own, yeah. right? But I think there is a strong element that the, the press, within a press bias against British Muslims contributes to some of it. I thought it was really striking, I'm concerned I may have said this last week in, on a different matter, but I thought it was really striking, right? A lot has been written about Rory Stewart's courage in the the leadership election. Mm. Okay, that's true up to a point. But actually, the leadership candidate who, you know, in his big hustings before the nation, chose to actually do something brave that none of the other candidates, including including the supposed shiny, happy liberal Rory Stewart, was to go, yes, we are going to have an investigation into Islamophobia and Ahadji, was Sajid Javid. And he received the grand total of zero sympathetic write-ups from any of the people who had been falling over themselves to write favourably about Roy Stewart because he speaks slowly and says that the withdrawal agreement isn't going to work. I mean, you you could quite literally, like, you could spit in any destination, in any direction in Westminster and hit three Tory MPs who are willing to do that. 
I thought it was a really fascinating, and one of the things we, we talk about rightly and correctly is, right, the only reason I think why Labour anti-Semitism has received anywhere near as much coverage as it has in the mainstream press is because of the tireless work that the community press has done in holding the story. Oh, yeah. And it shows that if you do not have institutions like that, that have a strong established presence, then the mainstream press will never come come to help you. Because I do, you know, I do think anyone who has written a piece about how brave Rory Stewart is, who did not write a piece about Sajid Javid's bravery in that debate, should ask themselves why. Yeah. Why don't they think... Like, it was, I agree with like, that. He also made himself vulnerable by talking about how he wasn't invited to the state banquet for, for Donald Trump. Yeah. And I thought that was another quite brave thing to do, not necessarily playing to his political advantage, but just something that was interesting and really highlighted how a British Muslim high up in public life is treated still. Yeah. I thought that was a brave thing to do too. And that was never written up in that way. So I completely agree with you. That's been, that's been a massive oversight. And the way that Rory Stewart, his campaign was really interesting the way he went around and walked around the country and he was speaking to sort of afghan men he met in the street and stuff that was all applauded by liberal tories about a liberal tory sajid javid you know didn't didn't have that treatment at all and i guess this yeah the thing that i feel then weirdly that i guess not lessened because it's it's wholly unsurprising that this is true about how minorities have to organize in order to get heard but to me the depressing commonality of these stories have is that outside of the actual outgroup itself most of the in-group is not going to exert itself. Mm. And the difficulty I feel with both now is they've essentially reached a point where I try and work out, yeah, when I'm doing Morning Call, what is the level of story about Islamophobia in the Conservative Party now that I would register as surprising enough to cover? Or ditto like the Labour Party. What is the actual point now in which I would go, all right, yeah, that seems like something which is not wholly par for the course yeah and that's the, the huge danger with 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 stories about prejudice is is that it becomes a norm people get complacent about it you don't feel the need to cover it anymore and it gets worse yeah and on that cheery note <laughs> you've been listening to the new statesman podcast with me stephen bush and anusha kellyan it was recorded this week by the two of us hence the uneven quality and rescued from the doldrums of bad sound by our producer Nick Hilton our music is Devil by the Devil licensed under Creative Commons